Okay, let's gather back now and take our seats and take your Bibles in hand. I know it was a brief meet and greet time, but that's just a prelude to the end when you can meet and greet again around um, food that we always have in the back. Let me mention one more thing. It was something I was trying to remember that I think is important. This offering of second through fourth graders does not change the other offerings that we've given the church. Uh, We are still second hour having nursery through first grade for the whole time of second hour. And then also for the fifth and sixth graders, we have what's called Hit Kids, which is helpers in training. And that's where my kids, my older kids are today. They are in the back serving children, learning the discipline of serving in the body of Christ. That gives the opportunity for some of the older kids, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, to serve sometimes and then to be in the worship service at other times. So we're just trying to make this as clear and as palatable as, as possible for the body of Christ. Let's pray right before we get into the word. Father, we pray that during this time you would give us grace to listen, to hear, to search our hearts. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to new things from the Word of God, things that have always been there but perhaps need to be uncovered for us so that we can drink deeply of the truth and grow in grace. Lord, thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for Bible study and thank you for this time and your truth. Thank you for the exalted, risen Christ who serves us even though he is our Lord. He is our intercessor and master, and we thank you that we worship him as God who humbled himself and became a servant to us so that, Lord, we could be saved and rescued. So let us now feed at the Lord's table from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in James chapter 4, and we're looking at the topic of the sovereignty of God. These are tough questions posed in James on the sovereignty of God, verses 13 through 17. Let me read this very familiar text to you this morning. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Recently, I poked into a book called Counterfeit Gods written by Tim Keller He's a Presbyterian pastor, and he's the pastor of the largest, fastest-growing church in New York City. And in this book, Counterfeit Gods, he deals with the issue of heart idolatry. How we put other things up, like money. We prop things up like that instead of worshiping God. Well, with the sort of global economic crisis on his mind and on all of our minds... He cited some tragic effects of people who have lost everything, losing their life savings, and how they've lost hope at the same time. And we know that that's been sort of the ongoing um, drama with especially the lower 48 and how the economy has been crunched. He talked about how a CFO from Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, that CEO took his life also said that there's a CEO of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, also took his life. A French money manager who invested a good bit of money that was given to him from the royal families in Europe. After losing $1.4 billion, took his life. This was all part of the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. Which, by the way, speaking of Bernie Madoff, he lost, in this sort of crisis and crunch, $21 billion of invested money from clients. He had promised returns in that $21 billion of $64 billion that no one ever saw. 
and he's serving 150 years in prison for it. Tragically, though, a British soldier who lost his life savings took his life. Even perhaps more tragic than that is that Bernie Madoff knows as he sits in prison that his son, Mark, also took his life, was found in his apartment building with his two-year-old son in the next room. This is grimly reminiscent of the effects of the Great Depression, the great stock market crash of 1929, is it not? But sadly, it's where people are putting their trust and heart in money in temporal gains instead of putting their trust in a God who is in control of everything. And when you lose everything, perhaps your life is just beginning as a Christian, depending on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, knowing that he will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. We've been talking about the sovereign rule of God and how we need to recapture the idea in our nation that we are a country that is one nation under God. We need to recapture the fact that the Lord is sovereign over all the nations, and he is. But more importantly, we need to to recognize and restore the idea and the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord over his church. Amen? He's Lord over your lives as Christians. And he is the head of the body raining down power and life to us to meet our spiritual needs. Whether we have much or have little, we can, like Paul, in prison, learn the secret of being content. We can grow in our contentment, which is next to godliness. Not being lovers of money like the world But it can creep into the church and James is saying to the earliest stages of the church in this text that we dare not put our hope in what we think we can achieve financially for ourselves, what we can predict, what we think we can secure by our own strength and power instead of trusting the Lord. God is sovereign even over our money. Last time we talked about how God is sovereign over the people in our lives, even people that we struggle with. And in James 4, verse 11, he talks about how when we stop believing that God has the right to rule over the people in our lives, that was point one on the sovereignty of God. When we stop believing that God has the right to rule over the people in our lives, then we're doing something that is terrible. We're putting ourselves above people. We're judging them. We're talking people down. We're criticizing them. We're putting ourselves above the law of God where the law says love your neighbor as yourself. And, and really, ultimately, we're putting ourselves above God who's the lawgiver and judge. When we talk people down and sort of lose the picture of God is sovereign and put people in our lives for a purpose... Even people that we disagree with or struggle with, when we do that, we're basically saying, God, move off the throne and put me in your seat, and I'm going to judge them. And that's what James is rebuking here. He's sort of stepping on our spiritual air hose, our, our piety and our pride, and he's saying, listen, wake up. Don't judge people because God is ruling on the throne as lawgiver and judge. What is the sovereignty of God? Let me just define it for you before we move on. We talked about a couple weeks ago affirming that God has the right and the power to rule over us. That's the sovereignty of God. He is Lord over everything. I've heard a preacher say, look, if you don't believe the Lord is over all, then you don't believe the Lord is Lord at all. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And the New American Standard says, And his sovereignty rules over all. His kingdom reign rules over all. Psalm 115, 3, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Proverbs 21, 1, listen to this one. This really applies with our government officials today, our president and everybody in between. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. He's guiding and directing sovereign rulers here as the ultimate sovereign over all of the rulers. And you know what? If he guides those officials, then he guides our hearts as well. Romans 8.28 
The ESV puts it this way, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God's in control. He's in control. He's Lord. You want this truth, don't you? It's a humbling truth to relinquish your rights and say, Lord, I know that you've given me gifts and talents and I assert them for your glory, but I'm ultimately leaving results into your hands. God is sovereign. It's a humbling doctrine, but it's a very, very important one and very comforting as we rest in our Lord. What does sovereignty gain you? You know what it gains for you in your mindset? It gains for you a right view of God as king. He's not serving circumstances. He's Lord over all the circumstances. There aren't things that take God by surprise, but all things are working according to his perfect plan. This gives us peace. It gives us rest. And it puts our goals heavenward, doesn't it? If you believe that you really are totally in charge of what's going to happen to you in your life, then your goals are set for your lifetime. You're sort of ensconced in this world in terms of what you want to make happen for you with the trophies that you're going to gain and then you die. But if you stretch your mind like the Bible does, where God is seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and he's Lord over everything and had a plan all along, then you begin to put your goals heavenward. And you understand that even though life is tough at times and maybe doesn't make any sense whatsoever... That God is weaving it all together for his eternal purposes and glory. I said this last time, and I think that this bears repeating. Believing in the sovereignty of God is like looking at a beautiful tapestry that's flipped over. And you see all of the thread work that's multicolored and sort of gnarled and knotted off. And you don't really understand how it's... um, working together, how it's cohesive, what it's building, what it's making, and all those threads, they they represent the good, the bad, and the ugly in your life. But one day in glory, God flips that tapestry over and you see a beautiful picture where all of the events and circumstances, all of the highs and lows, all of the worries, all of the concerns, all of the good times were put together as a purpose and a plan in God's design to bring himself glory and will bring us as Christian followers of God satisfaction, resting in his plan. That's what we're talking about. James 4 verse 10 is a strong command leading up to this section where James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And what James is doing is he's bringing up a couple strong issues to see if the church is going to follow this command. Are you going to humble yourselves under the lordship of Christ or are you not? So he brings up what we just talked through, how you can either talk people down and play God or you can humble yourself. And then in verses 13 through 17, you can either try to muscle through business ventures, playing yourself as a practical atheist, forgetting God altogether with your plans... Or you can plan with God in your view. Planning, achieving, striving, working with God's sovereignty in the background, in the foreground, in and through your thinking. That's what the Christian must do. And that's why James calls the Christian church to attention. Look at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say. Now, this is, this is strong language. This is almost like a subtle, sarcastic rebuke. He's saying, look, come on, come on, come now, listen up. I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say to you because I see an attitude in the church that I want to work on now. That's what he's doing. In James 5, verse 1, he says, come now again. This is going to be a more severe rebuke in James 5 on unbelievers who were extorting church members in the church. But in verses 13 through 17, he's talking to the flock and he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers and he's saying, come now, you who say, or you who would have this attitude, that is, a person saying, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make trade, a year there and trade and make a profit. 
to sound like something worthy of a rebuke or not. It's kind of a common verse that probably many of you have read before. James is taking this very, very seriously, and he's saying, listen, there are people who believe in their own self-sufficiency so much that they forget about God altogether. They're wrapped up, even as believers in the church, and they're wrapped up in worldliness and materialism and gain, and they never pray about what God is going to do with their job. They never pray about the results of what they could earn. They never give it all to God, per se, but they just run down the road and race on the treadmill of performance, forgetting about God altogether. The question is, does a person believe God has the right to rule over finances. In the church, there, remember, there was all kinds of quarrels and fightings that was going on, James 4.1. People were upset in the church, and James is sort of addressing this through the back door, saying, look, if you're wrapped up in money and business venture, more than recognizing that God is ruling and reigning, then you're going to be fighting about things. That's what he's doing here. Remember, this, this would be a church that would have a good opportunity. They had been spread out in the diaspora all over the Mediterranean Sea. So they were into commercial fishing and trading and going to ports. And James is saying, listen, some of you are saying you're going to go to a place for a year. You're going to set up shop and you're going to make some money. And they would have. They would have been involved in free enterprise. And he's saying, just like, you know, Lydia, who was a seller of purple, or the Proverbs 31 woman who bought a field and sold a field and tried to make a profit, and and Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers. He's saying, look, there are people who do this in a godly way, but this is not the godly way to think. Because the people I just listed, they were into trade. I'm not stepping on the idea of being, you know, capitalistic or a person who's going to earn some money. I really believe that we are called to work a job. I believe we're called to invest. Jesus talks about, you know, in the parable of the talents that you aren't supposed to just do away with your talent. You're supposed to invest it for the future. There are other parables that talk about investing, being aggressive for God. We're called to work, but we're called to work with an attitude of humility, recognizing that the Lord has to provide the increase. And so that's why the rebuke is here. The key to the problem is making plans without God in mind. Now you might say, look, is this, is this really for me? Because, you know, I work a job and I think I'm humble about it. Well, I just want to bring up the idea that this is a common sin, This is a sin that I deal with in my own life every week of my life or every day of my life. Where I go to work, I'm in a routine, I'm working my job, I'm seeing people, I'm working with colleagues, and I'm trying to get stuff done. And it's real easy to get wrapped up in the work and forget about God altogether. Is it not? This is a common sin. This is a common issue that we need to bring before the Lord, recognizing that God is Lord over our lives. It's general thoughtlessness. It's aspiring to finish a degree where you go, I'm going to get more money if I finish this or, or that. It's aspiring to things without keeping God's sovereign rule in our thinking. Now, we're definitely called from the Proverbs not to be lazy. We're called to be entrepreneurial. We're called to go for it in this life. But we need to do it in tandem with God's lordship over it all. Now, verses 14 and following give us reasons You should never talk this way. Here's the first reason. It comes up in verse 14. It says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The reason you shouldn't talk this way in this sort of arrogance where you say we're going to go and do this or that is because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. No one knows the future but one person, and that's God, right? We don't know the future. We, we don't really know what's going to happen. Jesus said in Matthew 6, today has enough trouble of its own. Let that day take care of itself. I'm not saying we shouldn't plan. We should make plans. But at the same time, we should live in the moment, recognizing that we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, do we? 
my secretary, as many of you know, um, and you're praying for her, Rosemary Masters. Do you know her and her husband, Rich? She worked uh, all week for me, and on Friday, you know, we closed uh, the day off and went home, and then that night um, I found out she went to the emergency room at Providence Hospital, both both of her lungs filling up with fluid that's being diagnosed right now. She had recently had one of her lungs drained. It was very severe. We need to be praying for her. And in the hospital this time, she had a lung drained, and she's waiting to have the second one drained. She didn't know she was going to be in the hospital. She didn't know at the end of her day that she was going to be in the ER. And probably many of us could share stories like that. We don't know what the future holds. Rich is in Italy right now. We're praying that he can get transport back um, to here. But we don't want to be presumptuous. We want to live each day under God. We can't predict the future. We can't. Secondly, no one controls the future. No one controls the future. Look down at the text again. It says, what is your life? Stop there. What is your life? You know what James is doing here is he's saying, look, you are one of billions in the world. Perhaps the population wasn't what it is today. But six billion people are on this planet teeming this terra firma, teeming this world around us. And we are one of them. We are a speck that is sort of, if you look at the mass of humanity, imperceptible. Now, at the same time, let me just add, the Bible says you are made in the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. He loves you personally. But as we perceive ourselves, especially if we compare ourselves to God, we see how disproportionately small we really are and how our life is here and then it's gone. I mean, if you think about all of the eras of history, how people come and they go. People are here and they leave. Uh, The hearse with the person in the casket is going to the cemetery and passing the ambulance on the road with the mom who's expecting and getting ready to deliver a child. You were here, you were born, and then you die. Life is very, very transitory. In fact, James goes on to say, for you are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. A vapor. You're a little puff of steam out of the kettle that's here and gone. You're that little breath of air that comes out in the cold that's here and then it just vanishes away. It dissipates. You're like the fog that lays over the Chugach Mountains that's here in the morning and then all of a sudden it's clear and it's gone. And that's how life is. Ecclesiastes has something to say about this, doesn't it? You know, the preacher Solomon is saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He could be saying, look, you know, life just cycles and cycles, all is vanity. You need to keep that perspective in mind. Don't enthrone yourself to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think because you're here and you go. The last chapter of that sermon, Ecclesiastes, talks about how people will die. If you think about it, if you ever go to a funeral, you think about how quickly life can be taken or how how final death is. It's sort of every time I go to a funeral, I'm, I'm grieving and I'm hoping for that person that they're in Christ's presence and enjoying their relationship with God. And, and sort of I'm grieving with people who are grieving through that. But at the end of the funeral, everybody sort of stops and goes into the next room or some buffet line and eats chicken, Right. I mean, that's, that's how life is. And to some degree, that's a grace to us because we are called to move on and keep enduring even if there is ongoing pain. But life is here and it is over. And James is saying, look, recapture this perspective. This is why you shouldn't talk in that proud way of verse 13 because you're here for a little while and then you vanish you turn over to Luke chapter 12, turn over to Luke chapter 12 real quickly. This is a parable that 
I think was in the mind of James as he wrote these words is very strong in terms of our perspective, in terms of saving money for the future and this presumption of sin. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, he says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You think some of this could have been on James's mind? Verse 16, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Is that the name of the game? Is that how life rolls for everybody? Not saying that we shouldn't invest, but our confidence can't be there. Because look, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not, look at these words, and is not rich toward God. You want to be rich toward God, then you have to have a faith perspective about your life and about your earnings, about your today and about your tomorrow. And recognizing that God is sovereign over my life. Job again and again cited the idea of how life is a vapor. It's here for a little while. It vanishes away. Job, he was thinking that through as he was going through so much. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, what? Remains forever, right? Right? The word. It's not us. We are not sovereign over our lives. James chapter 1, verse 10, talks about the rich man, how he should... Be lowly in his humiliation. Why? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. We have to have a biblical balance, I think. Well, that, that is sort of the rebuke of a person who says, look, should God be in charge of my finances? And if the answer is no, then he's going to talk like verse 13. But if the answer to the question, should God be in charge of my finances, if the answer is yes, you're going to talk like verse 15. See the parallel there? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Let me say up front that verse 15 is an attitude of the heart. This is what your attitude should be as a Christian. You should be interlacing with your plans, prayers to God, where you say, Lord, if you are willing, then this or that will work out. James isn't saying don't make plans, but he is saying that you need to have an attitude of humility, bowing before your sovereign Lord, saying, listen, God, I'm going to make my effort to make something happen, but I have to yield ultimately to how your plan and purposes are going to work out. That's how a person talks. Now, have you ever heard a person say things and then qualify them with a postscript, Lord willing? Have you ever heard that? Like, I'm going to cross the street, Lord willing, or I'm going to get in my car now, Lord willing. I think that that can be a helpful phrase for some people to remind them that God is in control. But let me warn you of something. Just by putting a postscript at the end of your statement and saying, Lord willing, you are not putting shields up against your own pride. Just by saying, Lord willing, you're not staving off God's discerning eye into your heart where he sees really where you're placing your trust. It shouldn't be just some automatic phrase. It needs to be something that you really mean if you say it. And frankly, it needs to be an all-encompassing attitude of our hearts where we say, listen... I can't take my next breath without the Lord. 
let alone figure out my tomorrow for sure. And I don't have any certainty for where my money's really going to come, come from. And God, you own it all. That needs to be our pervasive attitude. Even Paul didn't always say Lord willing or make a reference to the Lord's will as he was doing his missionary ventures in the book of Acts. He was planning, but he had an attitude that God is in control. This is not a magical formula statement. This is an attitude of the heart. And let me warn you of something else. There are TV preachers out there, on the other hand, who would completely want to rip this verse out of the Bible. There are TV preachers who promote health and wealth, and they say that every Christian deserves perfect health and perfect wealth, And if they don't have it, it's because they are lacking in faith. They're not believing God for it enough. Have you ever heard that line? That's very dangerous and it's very pervasive on the TV. Because people are interested in hearing this. Give me the magical formula to make something work out for me. Let me drum up enough faith to get health and get wealth. And And TV preachers will say, I know one in particular who said, it would be sin to say, if the Lord wills, I'll be healthy. Or if the Lord wills, I'll gain more money. But I don't know what he's going to do with a verse like this. Because the God I know and serve is sovereign over suffering. Even the suffering of his beloved son who died on the cross. And he said before he went to the cross... Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Do you think Jesus had enough faith in that moment? He had enough faith to go and suffer for Christ. You might be suffering physically. Your heart might be breaking inside this morning. You might be strapped financially. But God is your peace and your comfort through the storm, no matter if that gets resolved or fixed immediately or not. That's the sovereignty of God. That's resting in the truth of God being Lord over all and his plan. And Jesus did it perfectly. He did. Lord willing, verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I want to pick up on the, on the idea of the will of God for a second. Because someone asked me about that a couple weeks ago when I started this series on the will of God, the sovereignty of God. There are two versions of the will of God displayed in scripture. One is the revealed will of God and the other is the secret will of God. These are very important for you to understand especially in this context. James here is talking about the secret will of God, the will of God that we don't know, but God has it planned in the future for us. But there's also the revealed will of God. And you know what that is? That's this, that's the word of God. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see passages that say, um, this is the will of God. One from um, 1 Thessalonians, that we abstain from sexual immorality. That each man knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That is God's will. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. But you know what? Some people will be immoral and will disobey the revealed will of God. And some people will end up in hell perishing forever and ever. So you have the revealed will of God that we can obey. These are the commands of Scripture. And then you have the plan of God as everything is playing out. Some people obeying the revealed will of God and some people disobeying the revealed will of God. It's important for you to understand this. Nothing happens by surprise with God, but he does lay out the law of God for us to obey. And and there are many of you who say, I wonder what God's will is for my life. Well, we can't know the secret will. Some of you are going, which college should I go to? Who should I marry? What job should I go towards? You know, what, what decision should I make? Well, all I can tell you is God has given us the revealed will of God, and we can be in the center of God's revealed will by trying to obey passages of Scripture. But then we trust God as he unfolds his secret will before us. Turn over to Deuteronomy 29. This is uh, sort of a key passage that grabs both concepts and wraps them together. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is a passage 
this chapter is, is, is filled with sort of emotion because Moses, as the leader of the nation of Israel, has led them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and they're on the cusp of going into the promised land. And he's written this as the second law for them. That's where you get the word Deuteronomy. And he's recounting through Deuteronomy 29 about how God has protected this nation, resting them from out from under the bondage of Pharaoh and bringing them through the wilderness. That's part of God's secret will that was unfolding before them. And then interlaced in this chapter are commands and and desires stated from God through Moses for the Israelites to obey. And so there is the secret will of God and the revealed will. And he's even prophesying at the end of this chapter saying that there is going to be disobedience and you, you will be put into captivity and people won't understand that. But it's because you're disobeying the revealed will of God. And then verse 29 wraps it all together. Look at this. The secret things, here's the secret will of God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. That's the revealed will of God. Secret will, revealed will. You see it a bit in Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. This is where the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the nation of Israel after they had gone into the promised land and then gone into Babylonian captivity. They'd gone through nearly the 70 years of captivity and then Jeremiah is speaking up, talking about the secret will of God to comfort the Israelites as they're getting ready to go back into the promised land. He says in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. All right, now here's the familiar verse, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The revealed will of God is objective, and it is what we're supposed to obey. But we need to be comforted by the sovereign plan of God. It's a humbling truth, but it is, I would say, apart from gospel, direct gospel references, the sovereignty of God is the most comforting doctrine in all of Scripture. That God is in control. That nothing is happening by mistake. If you're dealing with the sin of anxiety... Emotions that are sort of out of control, I would really encourage you to regrip the sovereignty of God. Understand that He is perfectly in control, that everything's happening after the counsel of His will. Look back into James, James chapter 4. Sort of to wrap this up, these are reasons you should talk this way. Verse 15 says, we should have this attitude. If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. We should have that attitude. Why? Why should we talk that way? Here's the reasons. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. If you're not talking that way, then you're being arrogant. To not trust God's sovereignty is to be filled with pride. That's what James is saying. And he's citing the fact that these merchant tradesmen are bragging about their accomplishments. They've, they've gone overseas. We've, we've made good money. We've, we've done well for ourselves and we're bragging in our arrogance about what we've done. And he says, if you're doing that, if you're sharing story upon story about the trophies of your own accomplishments, then all such boasting is evil. Evil. What a word. This is sort of the all-encompassing word of what our character is when we are filled with pride. I think of Isaiah chapter 14, where Satan raised himself up before God with five I will statements. I will ascend to the throne. I will usurp your authority. I will do this. I will do that. The I wills of pride. And it's interesting that this word evil is a name for Satan himself. It's the evil one. And we're like the evil one when we puff ourselves up in pride. When we fall into the condemnation of the devil, as 1 Timothy 3 talks about, being conceited. Well, 
The first reason we shouldn't talk this way is we're denying God's rule, and it leads to pride, boasting in our own successes. Instead of, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. It's just simple Christianity. It's what I was able to sort of quote to Rosemary Masters in the hospital. She said, that is my favorite verse of scripture. It's all we've got when everything's taken, right? If all our money was drained out through a Ponzi scheme, what would you have left? You'd have the best thing. God is in control. He's ruling. He's reigning. You'd have confidence that this didn't happen by mistake. You're not kicking yourself to despair. Psalm 37.5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. You know, there is a real temptation, even in my own heart, to try to force things to happen. Can you resonate with that temptation? You want something so bad, you're you're just putting all kinds of exertion and effort into it. I show up at work just like you do. Some of you are workers at home. You've got your own agendas, your own things that you're working through. But you think, I'm going to muscle through this in my own strength. I, you know, I believe so many great things for Anchorage Grace Church. I believe that we have the great potential to enhance the glory of God through evangelizing Anchorage, evangelizing Alaska and the world through missions. We pray for that on Wednesday nights now in the chapel. It's a little side advertisement. And also I believe in discipleship ministry like Wednesday mornings now at 6 a.m. with the men. You're all invited to come over. I believe in these programs. I believe in our Sunday school classes that are enhancing. We have a new Sunday school class that's going to come next week, this hour, in the chapel on the disciplines of grace. Learning spiritual disciplines for the Christian life led by Steve Pauls. I believe in these things, but it's easy for me to want to force things through and make things happen and call people to high standards and not trust in God for the results. And that's no way to live. Not for me and not for you. And you know what? The best thing that we can do is serve God and just be faithful and leave the results to him. And watch this. When you do that, when you talk that way at your workplace, with your neighbors, with your people, and you're saying it's all up to God ultimately, that is an earth-shattering witness to people. It might be common church talk in, closed in this room. But out there, when you say, look, I'm trusting God for the results, that is sort of earth-shattering evangelism that you've just done. Say, I don't know how to evangelize. Just say you're trusting God and smile about it. You've done it. You've just drawn a line in the sand. They're either going, I'm moving towards you or I am moving away from you. Because everybody else wants to be their own sovereign. Everybody else wants to be God. And to acknowledge God as sovereign Lord is to say, I'm not God. I'm not in control of my life. To deny God's rule, secondly, is to sin. It's to sin. Verse 17 is where James is making it abundantly clear that to be presumptuous, to sort of stand in self-sufficiency, to sort of honor yourself with what you're going to accomplish in this life, to play the practical atheist and completely check out on God and not think about God in terms of what's happening for you and how he's blessing you, to do that is sin. And he wants to sort of wrap it all up in verse 17. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, a lot of people will lift this verse out of context and say, listen, you know, you were posed with two decisions and you knew the right one and you did the wrong one. So that was sin. And that's not what we need to do with this verse. James is appealing to the conscience of the church to say, listen, don't boast and brag in your own accomplishments. If you're wrapped up in your own arrogance, that is sin. It's violating God. It's something that can be dealt with through repentance And trusting the Lord and his gospel. Let's make a few application points. Number one, 
This comes right to my own doorstep, by the way. This is where I'm living. Verse 1. Pray with your family about daily and long-term decisions with God's involvement in mind. Do you do that? Do I do that? That is so important because children are watching you. They're wanting to know what's on your heart. And so as you speak words of humility towards God, saying, God, we don't know how we're going to pay for this, or we don't know how we're going to go on this vacation, or we don't know how we're going to reach our neighbors. We don't know how those things are going to happen. We don't know where work is going to come from. We don't know how we're going to have income. But God, you are in control. If you pray those kinds of prayers interlaced between effort and trust, effort as we work a job, trusting the Lord and his sovereignty, that will have an undeniable forever impact in the lives of your children. The sovereignty of God. It will also take the anxiety edge off of your home in terms of decisions. It's a real gut check to pray that way. It really is. It's to dethrone ourselves is what it is and trust the Lord. Number two, leave room for God to redirect your plans through God, changing your desires, and through God, changing your circumstances. It's important to plan. I've said it all through this sermon hour, but it's important to be open to the Lord's work in our hearts, right? Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. A lot of people will say, look, well, that means you just delight in God and then you'll get things. Well, it's a little bit deeper than that. God sows seeds in our hearts and forms desires that we have that are in accordance with his will. They jive with what he wants as we're delighting in him. And guess what? Then he brings fruit out and all of a sudden we're getting something that we didn't want a week ago. But because we're delighting in God, he's changed us to want things that he wants for us. And he grants them to us. He's shaping us as we pray prayers, acknowledging his will over our own. And then you need to leave some slush in your plans, some slush fund and some flexibility there, right? As you're going for it, you're going in a direction. And then there's an obvious block to where you think you needed to be. If you're prepared for that, you're not going to have a crisis and fall apart. You trust God with changing circumstances. All right, number three. Match your goals with scripture. This is a little bit of the toe-stepping on time in the sermon. How, How will my business venture or relocation affect my calling to my family, my church, and my community? If you're thinking... In terms of God's sovereignty, you're going to ask yourselves questions like these. You might be facing a relocation to a new geography, a new place. Your first question should be this. How is that change going to affect the lives of my children? As the Puritans called it, my little church. How's, how's that going to... If I take on more job, if I take on more overtime, if I take on more responsibilities to make money, how's that going to affect my time to shepherd my kids? That's how you need to think. That's how I need to think. Or for you who don't have kids, how is making that decision going to affect my ability to serve in my church? With or without kids, we need to ask that question. You all have a gift and you all have a responsibility and a calling for joy in your heart as you serve God with the talent that he's given you. We all do. And we all have to ask the same question. How is my job affecting my calling to my home and my church? You say, I don't have enough time to show up for this or that, or I can't do that in the church. I can't extend the morning hour of my my commitment here at Anchorage Grace. I can't go to that study or I can't do that. Well, I just think you got to start with your priorities. Biblically and say, Lord, how are you best using me to advance your kingdom? Where is my talent? What is my gift? And matching your goals with scripture will beg this issue. You know, even with our community evangelizing, we have to leave room for evangelism. 
I mentioned this first hour, my wife is always inviting people over, either from the church or from our neighborhood. All of a sudden, our dinner table turns from a family of 8 to 12 or 10, and it's like, well, the more the merrier. You know, food's flying around and it's chaos anyway, but it's a good opportunity to witness to people. That only comes, your, your peace in that only comes, your peace of mind and peace of heart only comes when your goals are meshing with Scripture. Do you get that? You've got to match what you want with what Scripture is telling you to want. Number four, make it your habit to acknowledge the Lord when you have success. Do you do that? Not as a mantra or a postscript when something happens, but when something happens good in your life, you should say, praise the Lord and mean it. On Monday night, there's going to be a big game. It's uh, the Washington Redskins are going to play the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, let me rephrase that. The Washington Redskins are going to beat the Dallas Cowboys in their home stadium, Lord willing. All right, now. <laughs> but... I bring that up to say, no matter who wins or who loses, I'm always encouraged to see players get together um, from both teams and to pray afterwards. And they've shown that on TV over the years. Or when you hear someone's testimony, whether a coach or a player, say something about the Lord. And I don't mean just sort of a passing comment about God was with me, but when someone sincerely, and you, you can kind of resonate with that person when they sincerely say, the Lord's grace was with me, and God has gotten me through, or God has kept me protected on the playing field, etc. You can see it. And I'll tell you what, in your own arena, your own theater of witnessing, your own evangelistic efforts, when you tell people, listen, the only reason why I was successful here, or I got this accolade, or this happened for me, was God did it. I put efforts, but God... He made up the difference in my life. When you do that, you are witnessing to a watching world. And the first people you're witnessing to are your children. It's important. Make it your habit to do this. This will influence your own heart. It'll soften you up and it'll influence other people around you. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? We all all do and we all should because it's scriptural. Let's humble ourselves before our great Lord and give him the glory as he formulates the plan in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in your truth. Lord, it's rich and it's deep and it's practical. And God, I pray that we would be transformed and mindful of what we've just heard, not forget, but Lord, that we would be doers of the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.